This program is a presentation of UCTV for educational and non-commercial use only. been looking at this very messy tree that's obesity and but we don't we transmogrify things as we look at them and change them into some kind of order in our brain and if you look at the shadow underneath that tree you'll see that it's rectilinear it's astonishing um, it's very highly ordered. And my point is, I think, that we've heard, how many people? Fifteen today? Mm -hmm. uh, all giving their rectilinear uh, sense of what this very, very messy tree essentially represents. and. My sense to Alyssa is that all of the approaches are highly worthwhile, and, uh, and you gotta just keep going at it. That's my three minutes. <laughs> Hi, I'm Bill Hartman. I'm a, I'm a clinical psychologist. I've um, been specializing in individual treatment of obesity, intense interventions, lifestyle, and work with bariatric surgeons. I started in 1982 to, dis to just become a specialty in obesity treatment, and so I met Kelly within <clears throat> months of that. So I discovered today uh, that Kelly's been my guru the whole time, so I didn't realize he taught me that my entire career is being an educator and an implorer, <laughs> which is a good way to actually look at it. Um, I've watched him. I've stayed in the clinical treatment, but I've, I've, I've watched Kelly migrate over to the public health sector, and because of a lot of what we've heard today, I, th I think, um, well, patients ask me all the time, I have a really long view of obesity treatment, and I think if we take a hard look at all the data, all of the branches and so on, I tell my patients routinely, I think we've seen two changes in obesity over the at least 27 years I've been in the field. One, we have a much better understanding of the science, of which this conference today is a clear example. And two, there's been improvements in surgical technique. Mm -hmm. In terms of the other treatment stuff, the things that I saw Kelly present in 1982 are still some of the best data. Our treatment is lagging way behind. Um, and so I think if Kelly and Susanna and Marianne and so on, if you don't succeed, I think we should be very, very afraid mm -hmm. because of the change in the food supply because I think we might, th those of us in treatment might be rearranging deck chairs on the uh, Titanic. Um, in terms of addiction, as a clinician, I ask, can I use it? And uh, right away, I think the answer is absolutely yes. Um, my patients, I ask them actually to read Kessler's book, you know, The End of Overeating, which is really a good lay description of, of kind of the addiction hypothesis. And they come back, person after person comes back and says, that rings true 
and the proposed treatment isn't going to be strong enough. Um, it's probably because you're exposed to all of those drugs, if you will, all the sugar, fat, and salt. Um, but it's still very useful to me. Mary did it in a, in a throwaway line where she said, you know, when you, if, you, if patients realize rats can do this, maybe it's biological, maybe it's not my fault, which I think is one of our challenges as a clinician is to get patients to let go of that self-blame, I should be able to do this better, what's wrong with me? And in fact, when I present Nicole and Mary's data to my patients, which I do, you can watch that happen. They're like, oh, you know, maybe this isn't my fault. Um, I think in terms of treatment, we're going to get a little help conceptualizing it from the DSM-5, although um, Ashley will know more than me. My understanding as we move to DSM-5 is there's going to be a de-emphasis on dependence, more emphasis on the stuff that we clearly see with food, cravings, loss of control, urges, and ultimately we may be looking at use disorders rather than calling it addiction or whatever. Yes, food use and sex use disorders, because Mary had made the comment, well, sex is a habit, food's a habit. Too much, well, anyway. Uh, <laughs> um, the parallel, uh, one parallel I'd be interested from the, from the animal researchers is, uh, is marijuana, because we've watched the debate swirl around that. And I think it's a good parallel with food. That debate swirled for 40 or 50 years. Is it addictive? Is it not? It's clearly abusable. Those of us of a certain age, um, new friends and roommates who would purchase <laughs> what we call a nickel or dime bag. It was five bucks worth of marijuana, which was a bunch of twigs and things, and a little bit of THC. Has nothing to do with the marijuana of today. Since to me, it's mu the potency has increased multiple times. So I have one little visual. This is the nickel bag, except it's a 15 cent bag in 1960. This is the 15 cent McDonald burger <laughs> yeah. with a sign some of us actually remember, over one million sold. <laughs> the drugscape has changed remarkably. That's what it's morphed into. So one way I use this stuff is I have my patients look at food when they're considering it as sugar, fat, and salt. So anyway, I, I'm, we still don't know if it's really addictive, but Either way, it's certainly abusable. In terms of the treatment, yeah, the big thing I can at least tell my patients now, it's not their fault. Um, I'm really, really interested also in, since if we look at it as an addiction, relative to alcohol and uh, tobacco treatment, we're not doing so bad. Our horrible relapse rates are no worse than their horrible relapse rates. <laughs> I guess that's the good news. And I'm really excited watching Laurel's stuff and Gene's uh, stuff where we're going to start to bring different ways to look at this, to go after the brain chemistry. And I, I love that, what did you call that? Uh, the outer, uh, outer, inner wisdom and outer wisdom. Go after the brain, but we're still going to have to change that environment, do mindless and mindful interventions. That's my two cents. <laughs> I have a special mic. So I'll, I'm <laughs> My name is Barbara Lariah, and I'm a nutritional epidemiologist here at UCSF, and I work at Coast with Alyssa. And uh, my research has mostly been interested in understanding the role of household food insecurity in the United States and the food environment um, on diet and weight in women and children. And right now, uh, food insecurity is on on the rise, where we developed a scale, and it's the um, academics, the anti-hunger food um, 
advocacy organizations and the government created a scale to try to measure household food security so it's it's how worried women and, and um, men are about access to enough food the balance of their food if they cut back their portion sizes if they're skipping whole meals or days of food because there's not enough money to buy enough food and we have found that household food insecurity is associated with weight, with overweight, with obesity, with, um, with weight gain. And since this measure has been implemented in our national surveys in 1995, the percentage of households that are food insecure have hovered between 10 and 12 percent. And in the 2008 uh, numbers were released in November. They're always released around Thanksgiving to give us all pause and, um, about the issue of food in America. And it was uh, almost 15%. And the number is rising. So we're anticipating that the 2009 um, numbers that will be released this year are, are going to be even higher. So what I have found in my research is uh, in pregnancy, women who report food insecurity uh, as expected, they have higher scores on depression, anxiety, perceived stress. They have lower mastery and self-esteem. And during pregnancy, they gain more weight. So they're more likely to gain um, above um, more weight in comparison to their food secure counterparts. And they also are at greater risk of gestational diabetes. So we're very concerned about this. And the, the, the good thing is that, not the good thing, but we have mechanisms in the United States, such as WIC and other programs that can, we can really utilize. If we mobilize them correctly, we can really assist low-income households, especially during pregnancy. Um, and, and this is really important now in, in light of this whole food environment and also with the question of intergenerational transmission of obesity. How much are we setting up the next generation when households and women are food insecure going through pregnancy? And how much are we setting them up when we do have these food deserts and we don't have access um, to healthy foods? And they, it has to be a mindless uh, choice, that you mindlessly reach for the blueberries, and you don't have to hunt for the blueberries <laughs> and forage, you know, driving great distances. We're, we're constantly bombarded, as we've seen through uh, all the pictures and photos and today, with all these unhealthy, um, nutrient-lacking um, foods. So I really believe that the exposure of food insecurity in the household is really driving a dependence on these very palatable foods because they're what cre creates some um, satiety and so women and children feel full because there's a cyclical nature that women and families that have money at the beginning of the month can get some food and at the end of the month they don't have enough food and they're constantly dependent on, on this poor nutrient um, quality food. So that's my two cents. I'm, a, uh, I'm Larry Teacott. I'm a uh, psychiatrist, neuroscientist with a lab at Mission Bay. We use molecular genetic approaches to understand the brain's serotonin system and how it impacts feeding and uh, affect. And um, 
One of the things that uh, has struck me in the course of my work and has been illustrated really nicely here is the multidisciplinary nature of the obesity problem. Uh, each level is incredibly interesting and incredibly complex, starting with the societal level down to the level of individuals, their psychology, and then their brains. And then beyond their brains, the, the circuits within their brains, and then the uh, intracellular pathways within their neurons. And uh, we've touched on almost all of those aspects here. Uh, one of the, uh, I just have a couple themes I wanted to just quickly mention. One is the distinction between environmental and genetic uh, factors in obesity. The obesity epidemic is clearly not due to changes in genetic factors, which have not been keeping pace with the changes in the incidence of obesity. However, it doesn't mean genetic factors aren't important. They are very likely to be very critical to determining who is going to become susceptible to an obesogenic environment and who isn't. And the obesogenic environment bears a lot of study, and uh, uh, we saw great examples of basic science approaches to it with uh, addictive responses to, uh, to sugar and, uh, and feeding responses to stress. And I'd be particularly interested in knowing among the rats that binge when they're stressed what their genetic differences are that lead them to be susceptible uh, to that important human-like behavior. Uh, it's also, uh, I think, very important to make a distinction between hedonic and non-hedonic uh, mechanisms regulating feeding. We've been focusing mostly on hedonic mechanisms, um, hedonic meaning pleasure-related mechanisms, um, rewarding aspects of feeding. But there's also an equally complex uh, biology around uh, energy homeostasis that has little to do with hedonics. And that's uh, one of the challenges in understanding the hedonic aspects is to be able to separate it from those non-hedonic aspects. And one aspect of that that's particularly important is weight loss, uh, since um, there's a lot of physiological evidence that once an obese state is, is achieved, that the physiology takes on a life of its own and the body uh, has a set point or a settling point at which it tries to defend. And animals will do that and without any recourse at all to, uh, or without any, without any clear relationship to addictive processes. Uh, they're in a situation that's not addictive, but they will maintain the set point. And it's partly for that reason that the recidivism rate in obesity is, is worse than it is in cocaine addiction or, uh, or heroin addiction. And so that's not to say that there's not a contribution of addictive-like properties like craving and relapse. Uh, but in order to understand that, it's going to be very important to sort out the homeostatic from non-homeostatic mechanisms. And I wonder whether or not what we're talking about is much more important the addictive properties are much more important in the generation of obesity than they are in the treatment and maintenance or the treatment of obesity and the ability to maintain uh, a low, low body weight. I think that remains to be uh, determined. The last point I'll make is that um, it was, it's very telling that um, our problem is not education, that uh, uh, everybody knows uh, uh, most of the people who are obese don't want to be obese know uh, some of the mistakes that they're making. And uh, yet knowledge is clearly not enough. And so we've, saw, we've seen some really nice presentations um, um, uh, in 
fostering the extent to which people can make use of their advantages over other animals and use their large convoluted cortices to uh, come up with their own strategies for for basically for for subterfuging or for for the you know the body weight set point and uh, we've seen a mindfulness based EBT and a caloric restriction the caloric restriction methods is actually very smartly employing all these other methods as well in order to uh, in, in order to help maximize the extent we can uh, trick ourselves into helping ourselves and so I'll leave it at that <laughs> um, so this is uh, 18 seconds of super I was feeling bad in the car, feeling like shit. really. I was feeling really, really sick and unhappy. Started eating, feel great, feel really good now. I feel so good, it's crazy. Isn't that right, baby? Yeah, you're crazy, all right. <laughs> okay, now, everybody remember that that occurred on day 18 of his little uh, McDonald's binge. Okay, the bottom line is this guy was thin, he was a vegan, his w girlfriend was a vegan chef, okay? He wasn't exposed to any of this crap, okay? 18 days of McDonald's and he just described withdrawal, okay? So it can happen to anybody. You don't have to be genetically predisposed. Okay, anyone can do it. Okay, and the fact is, everyone is doing it, and that's one of the reasons why we have this problem. So the question is, you know, what is going on? And as Larry just alluded to, there is more than just um, uh, uh, hedonia involved in this. There is this uh, phenomenon called hunger, and there's this other phenomenon called stress. In fact, these are three different reasons to eat. And a couple of years ago, uh, Alyssa, Mary, and I locked ourselves in a room over at Parnassus to discuss sort of how all of this came to be. We came up with this little model called the limbic triangle. Three different areas of the brain, the VMH over here, which is where uh, uh, leptin signals starvation, or lack of leptin, I should say, signals starvation. Over here we have the nucleus accumbens, where leptin extinguishes reward, and that's very important, that we've got one hormone that's in charge of both satiety and also the extinguishing of reward. And then up there we have the amygdala, which of course is our seat of stress, fear, etc., driving cortisol. And so. Here's obesity here. Leptin is supposed to go up when you increase your fat cells, and leptin is supposed to feed back on this to reduce dopamine neurotransmission, thereby extinguishing reward and thereby reducing your food intake. It's supposed to work here to help you with satiety, thereby reducing food intake. But clearly it's not working, and the thing that we've uh, uh, added to the puzzle is that insulin blocks leptin signaling at both those areas. This is work done by Ralph DeLeon. This is work done by numerous investigators, Marty Myers, um, uh, Ben Neal, uh, 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 Mike Schwartz, a whole bunch of people. And what we did was we showed that when you dropped insulin in humans, not only did they feel better, they started exercising and they reduced their carbohydrate consumption down to nil. So we took a whole bunch of obese adults um, consuming 900 calories a day in carbohydrate, gave them a drug that suppressed insulin called octreotide, they lost 12.6 kilos over 24 weeks and reduced their carbohydrate intake from 900 to 350 calories a day spontaneously by themselves and started exercising because they felt better because now their leptin worked. Now their brain saw their leptin. They actually felt like exercising. 
Then you throw the amygdala on top of that with the cortisol generating insulin resistance and also we now know through stress through the neuropeptide Y system that Zofia Zukowska uh, demonstrated at Georgetown that that's that driving visceral fat accumulation which is also stealing energy thereby depriving you of the ability to burn that energy generating even more uh, food intake. So this is sort of a nice model which t incorporates a lot of the things we talked about today and a lot of the things, uh, one of the things that I was sort of a little uh, unhappy about is that only Mr. McLaughlin mentioned the word insulin pretty much the entire day. I think insulin's pretty darn important. Um, and I think that's one of the linchpins in this whole phenomenon. The other thing I wanted to mention is that We've got a problem in the sense that we're all talking about obesity, but we're really talking about something way worse. We're talking about the complications and the comorbidities beyond obesity. And that appears to be driven very specifically by Peter Havel's favorite substrate, fructose. And we have a paper coming out in Nature Reviews, Gastroenterology, Hepatology, which equates fructose with ethanol. In fact, you think about it evolutionarily, that actually makes sense because where do you get ethanol from? fermentation of fructose. The big difference between the two is that for ethanol, the yeast does the glycolysis and for fructose, we do our own glycolysis. But what happens to the substrate after the glycolysis is over is exactly the same with both substrates, causing intrahepatic lipid accumulation, causing hepatic insulin resistance, and that causes total body insulin resistance, which then drives leptin resistance, generating increased consumption. So we have now a vicious cycle of increased consumption and metabolic disease driven by the stuff we put in our food that has gone up immeasurably. And it's not fat that's gone up, it's sugar that's gone up. Our total fat intake is exactly the same as it was 25 years ago within five grams, plus or minus five grams for males and females. Our sugar intake is six times higher. We've gone from 15 grams a day of fructose consumption to 90 grams a day in fructose consumption. It's the only thing that has gone up and it correlates perfectly with the obesity and metabolic syndrome epidemic. So that brings me to what Dr. Brownell was talking about versus what Laurel Mellon was talking about. The question of how do you solve this? Do you solve this in an environmental public health uh, uh, mode or do you solve this in a personal, direct, you know, patient to patient uh, retraining mode? And the answer is yes. <laughs> okay, and that's basically what everyone here has talked about today, is that there's two ways to deal with this. We have to change the environment because everybody's suffering, and we have to specifically address the people who are most in need with direct therapy. And that, I think, is sort of where we, where, what the state of the art is right now. Well, I want to say at 4.05 that everyone up here has covered what I would have said much better perhaps than I would have covered it. And I really just want to say this was a wonderful day. I mean, if you had eight hours to learn everything you could possibly learn in eight hours about obesity and food addiction, this would be the day that you should come to. I'm so glad it's televised. And I would like to yield my time so that we can all finish. Thank you so much for, to all the speakers and the panel and the audience for their great input. Um, we are a little over time, but why don't we have another five minutes for questions to um, each other. You can direct it to a panel member or a speaker or to whoever wants to answer.
Barbara, I was just curious. I, I was thinking about what you were talking about with food insecurity and people mm -hmm. skipping meals. And it brought me back to the animal model research of it was the combination of restriction. And we kind of think, oh, restriction of diet, right? That we're all trying right. to diet. And so if we think of that combination not just from diet, but from the fact that you don't have the money to go purchase or the accessibility to that food. Uh, what do you think about that as like a potential combination with the, the only being able to access highly palatable foods to perhaps create that syndrome we were talking about? today the the, uh, the kind of addictive yeah the kind of uh, I, I think that's restrict exactly binge. what's happening is that um, that the anxiety whether which is perceived and real is driving that cycle and it's happening multiple times over the course of a year and and it's it, that's exactly what's happening so but it's it's coupled with the stress of the food insecurity and the immediacy of the high fat diets. So that's exactly what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I think one thing has been ignored today that I think is super oh. important and I was trying to get at it a little with the idea of, uh, of learning and memory or habit. And, and that is that uh, with restriction, there are several people papers and there's a lot of rodent literature saying that you elevate glucocorticoids in the restricted fed individual if, uh, if body weight goes down. Well, for instance, dancers are definitely hypercorticoid as are people with anorexia or nervosa, but it doesn't need to be that extreme. The elevated glucocorticoids have a wonderful effect on the squash, which is to make you learn and remember what is going on. So if you have, for instance, an acute stressor that uh, raises your glucocorticoids and you go have a donut, you will remember that you felt a hell of a lot better after that stress in um, together with the donut. And so maybe next time, if you don't have as big a stress, you'll just reach for the donut anyway. You know, it, it's soothing, it's comforting. I don't feel so good today. Maybe I'll have a donut. And I think learning and memory is key. A little story to tell. Uh, ten years ago, I lived in Memphis, Tennessee. And we saw what was going on in the lower socioeconomic uh, class in uh, an area called Orange Mound. And we got an audience with the Board of Aldermen of the city of Memphis to talk about the fact that there were no supermarkets. It was a food desert. Um, you know, Popeye's chicken had moved in. You, were, you know, the only place you could get a meal was at a gas station. And you know, that this was driving the obesity epidemic in this in, in this in the uh, lower socioeconomic status. Uh, uh, group in Memphis. And this one alderman looked down his glasses, down his nose at us, and said the following, and it still rings in my ears today. This is a direct quote. He said, you want to take away the single thing in these people's lives that give them pleasure? I was, we were all dumbfounded. We didn't have an answer for that. And here I am 10 years later, and I still don't have an answer for that. I mean, that's pretty sad. I mean, that's a sick commentary on our society. If that's where they're getting pleasure, to, to that uh, point, and since we're talking about addiction here today, you know, ba basically everybody's got an addiction. It's the only reason to get up in the morning. <laughs> okay? 
What happened when we gave obese people Rolanabant? They got depressed and suicidal, and a bunch of them committed suicide, which is why it's not uh, available here in the United States, is because we shut off reward, and when you shut off reward, you might as well kill yourself. The nucleus accumbens is the only reason to get up in the morning, and everybody has their addiction. Rich people have power, gambling. Middle-class people money. have money. <laughs> Middle-class people have cocaine, ethanol, cannabis, nicotine. And the dirt poor, all they have is sugar. So if we do something about this, will we be creating something else? Uh, as a trained psychiatrist, I'd like to let everyone know that uh, even if reward isn't coming uh, fast and furious for you, there may be additional reasons to live. <laughs> <laughs> And on that positive note, <laughs> I think we should end the formal symposium. I hope people stay on to talk. Thank you.